0: All right, I think everything's working. All right, uh, Jeremiah chapter 7 is where we are. This summer, we're working on the book of Jeremiah. We're not doing this in the typical way, uh, which typically we go verse by verse, and therefore we would be in the book for about how long? Oh, well, Jeremiah would probably take about seven years, probably, if we even did it in any way close. But in this particular case, I've uh, I've purposely stayed away from doing this verse by verse because Jeremiah is one of those books that just almost demands a an more overview, kind of a more survey, because there's so many difficulties and issues with the book of Jeremiah that if you get into every single one of them, you'll, you'll just you'll lose your mind, and we'll, you'll miss the whole overall message of the book. We've got issues with Jeremiah dealing with, first of all, the text, right? You've got the Septuagint verses the Masoretic text, right? There's a massive difference between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, right? So do we look at each difference for each verse? It would take us forever trying to figure that out. Not only that, what are some other difficulties for the book of Jeremiah that the book of Jeremiah presents all of us? It's not in chronological order, so that creates some problems. What's the second problem with the book of Jeremiah? The use of Figurative language, there's all kinds of figurative language being used, right? That's majorly a, a problem. Not only that, not only does it have figurative language, it also has sections that are poetic. There's also se- sections that are historical narrative. So, And you've got sections that are prophetic. So you've got prophetic, poetry, and historical narrative with figurative language mixed in, which creates all kinds of problems because... You, there, are t- there are those who will cre- uh, interpret some of it in a much more allegorical way, which some of the passages may demand an allegorical understanding. Others will tr- try to take it in a much more literal way, and and you can cr- it just you have all these issues. I mean, I'm not going to go back and repreach all of the problems with it, but there's just a host of issues, and every chapter really there's always something in there, and not only that, sometimes it is very difficult to determine what in Jeremiah. Who is speaking, all right, and who are they speaking to? And not only that, is it making a reference to something that has happened, is happening, or is going to happen? Because sometimes it speaks of future events as past events. Sometimes it speaks of future events as present events. And so all of it can be very, 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 very confusing and trying to work through. So what we're doing is much more of just a... Kind of an a, a, I don't even want, like a, a not a true overview i mean we're we are definitely reading every verse, yes well, and so In some, cases, future for them, past for us. some cases, future for them, past for us, right some cases, even past for them is still kind of spoken as future it it's all over the place and yeah you see, it'll use yeah it'll it'll be past tense verbs, and you'll be like, uh, wait, that's not past, why, but it got speaking of it as a completed act. But it's for us to try to figure that out, which leads to all of the problems and difficulties, right? So that's what we've been working on. So we're trying to do it in an overview. Obviously, with the the podcast, we're adding additional things to it and trying to add to it, uh, to try to just help us get through the book as much as possible. Now, the goal today was to have finished chapter 7 in the Sunday school hour, and we didn't even come anywhere close, and we blame Stephen for that, Okay because he decided to bring up Revelation chapter 12, and then everything, went, and it was the end of the world, okay? But we're going to try now to see if we can make it through chapter seven. I would love to get through chapter eight, but chapter eight has 22 verses, and you know there's just no way. It's impossible. But trying to figure out what to do. But we will, we will see uh, where we can get. But before we do that, just, just in case you did not know, maybe you'll care, maybe you won't care. We, uh, I did talk about it on the podcast. We were notified this week that our podcast is now in the top 5% of all podcasts in the world, which means the podcast, this is the message I received. This podcast is one of the top 5% most popular shows out of 3,131,302 podcasts globally. So that even though we are small here, it's good that our podcast is at least reaching. I mean, that's an amazing number. And we, uh, we also I can't remember the number we got to the other day. Let me look here. I have to log into my uh our statistics. We let me see here. Let's not go that way. Just so that you know what we are at least hopefully accomplishing. We had uh 200,000 uh downloads and streams. Was it two days ago in one day? We had 200,000 streams and downloads in one day. So that's, that's pre, I think that's pretty good compare, uh, considering. So we are grateful for that. And remember, the whole reason we're studying Jeremiah is for what we call the Bible study exercise. And the whole podcast is designed to get people to do what? To not just, as I always say, I don't want you sitting on the couch. I want you up at the table with a Bible reference tools to study the text for yourself. So with the Bible study exercise podcast, we give assignments and we do all of that. And then we bring that here to the church to try to kind of merge the two worlds together to some part. Now, sometimes I try to separate it more, but in in this case, the two are somewhat connected, right? So we've been given homework and assignments for the book of Jeremiah. A lot of people are participating. So that's a good thing. But for us, our job is to see, and, and for for the podcast, you know, I made a promise that we'd be like, you know, done with chapter nine tonight. But I, you know, I'm I'm breaking that promise. But here we go. Are you ready? The book of Jeremiah to try to summarize chapter seven. Let me just try to get everyone on the same page. Jeremiah has been sent to the temple. He's been sent to the temple to preach a message. Now the message is pretty simple because the message is repeated. Over and over and over and over and over and over in Jeremiah. And it's repeated, in fact, over and over in the Old Testament. But specifically, Jeremiah is sent to the temple to preach to whom? To Judah, right? Remember, we have the divided kingdom, right? Ten tribes went north, two went south. Uh, and, and as these, these kingdoms split, they split ultimately because, you know, Israel's, again, rebellion because they decided they wanted a king instead of following god the kingdom split what happens to the northern kingdom and it happened to them about a hundred years before jeremiah the assyrian captivity they're gone the northern the northern kingdoms are gone as far as a kingdom it never comes back they're gone obviously you got people left of the northern kingdom but as a nation it never comes back the southern kingdom judah they are now going, following the same pattern. The same pattern is rebellion, disobedience, and idolatry. And they are being warned that what's coming to the southern kingdom? Babylonian captivity, and they'll be there for 70 years. Now, the, the southern kingdom does come back out of captivity, and you're like, oh, it's good news. It's not good news, because when you open up your New Testament, they're under the control of Rome. And then in 70 A.D., they're wiped off the face of the earth, gone, right? No more. No more temple, no more priest, no more anything until they reform as the a nation in 1948, okay? But yet they still don't have what? The land that was promised to them and all of the issues still surrounding them. So we know that what we and in some ways, we kind of know the end of the story. We know what's getting ready to happen to Judah. They're going to be destroyed, but in the meantime, God has sent Jeremiah to preach to them. And we've read about all of that. In verse 12, just so that you have some context here, in Jeremiah 7:12, he tells them, "Go ye now unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people, Israel. Shiloh is where the tabernacle uh, where the uh, Ark of the Covenant was, and guess what happened to Shiloh? 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines come in and take the Ark, and Shiloh is destroyed. Shiloh is destroyed a second time by the Assyrians, so it's destroyed two different times, right? And why was it destroyed? Their idolatry and their sin. In fact, this becomes very depressing because it's the same message over and over and over. So if you go back 100 years, you got Shiloh being destroyed. If you go back even further, you still have disobedience and sin. If you look at the time of Jeremiah right here, Judah is sinning. They're going to go into captivity. They come out of captivity and what are they going to do? Sin. that's That's the just story that is told over and over and over and over, right? Then... After he tells them that, we we looked at chapter 7. We made it all the way down in the last hour to 24, all right, to 24. And once again, if you just look at verse 23... Uh, and 24, just for some context, 7, and 24, but this thing commanded I them, saying, obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, walk ye in all my ways, that I have commanded you, that it may be well unto you, but they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsels, and in the imagination of their evil heart, backward and not forward, and there's a, a major theme in the book of Jeremiah, the idea of backsliding, right, we talked, we We started looking up all the references to backsliding. Remember, we worked on all of that. They keep going backwards. But just remember, there's a a major theological issue here in the book of Jeremiah that gets overlooked in a lot of preaching. So, for all of their problems, for all of their disobedience, for all the promise of judgment, Jeremiah seems to offer one solution over and over and over. And what is that solution? Obey. All right, so from theological terminology, remember, there, this is very important in the history of Christianity, right? Especially after, after the Protestant Reformation and moving forward. There are two very important concepts, and those two concepts are law and gospel. All right, remember we did about a 70 hour series on law and gospel, and I'm still not done with it. We still need to work on it. Law and gospel, so let's make sure we remind ourselves when, how do we know when a scripture is law? It always says, do something, and it basically is do something and live. Do something and be saved. That's law. Gospel passage is what does a gospel passage say? It's been done for you by Christ. The law passages are meant to do what? To reveal to you your inability to do it, and to condemn you. The law is always to reveal that, right? Because God's law demands what kind of obedience? Perfect, personal, exact, entire, internal, external, perpetual right and i'm borrowing from the the 1689 london confession of faith for for that kind of idea right it's demanding that now what happens is we have a tendency to try to modify and say well as long as i don't do it this way but even if i obey the law externally i can still be guilty of the law internally so no matter how much we think we are obedient to it if we're even remotely honest with ourselves, we will find ourselves what broken, condemned, discouraged, and despairing. Remember, that's how the whole Protestant Reformation came about, right? Luther kept looking at all the scriptures that said, do this, do this, do this, do this. And he tried to do what? He tried to do it, do it, do it, do it, right? He would go to confession. He would be there for hours. And then he would leave confession and immediately go, oh, I forgot a sin. And he would go back, and finally the other priests were like, Luther, just stop, okay? Just... Hey, you're taking it too serious. But he's like, I'm not taking it too serious because God demands that I am holy. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, which once again is often misinterpreted in modern evangelicalism. What does Jesus demand in the Sermon on the Mount? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, immediately anyone reading on the Sermon on the Mount should do what? I can't do it. Now that constant reminder of what to do should drive you to acknowledge what you are. We are a sinner in action and by nature. Remember, how do we become sinners? Not by sinning, but by the sinful nature, right? We sin because of what we are. We don't become a sinner by sinning, we sin because we are sinners by nature, right? That's historical, biblical Christianity, right? Depravity of man, right? So the law will constantly reveal that. Over And all you see in the Bible is constant sin, whether it's Israel or in the church, right? And so what's the solution? The solution is to say, I can't. We need mercy and help. And then, of course, the solution is Jesus sent, or God sent his only son, Jesus, who then kept the law perfectly for us, paid for our sins by dying for us, so our sins are paid for, and then by faith, what happens to that? It's called passive and active obedience theologically, imputed to us. And therefore, our justification, we refer to it as what, uh, theologically? Forensic justification, meaning it's a legal declaration. And remember, that's the entire divide between Roman Catholicism and non-Catholic churches, right? Catholic churches, how are we justified? Justified. Or how are they justified in a Catholic system? Infused righteousness. It's infused into you. And we believe we are justified by an imputed righteousness. Therefore, it's a le- we are legally declared just even though we are not. We are legally declared to be holy even though we are not. So in our position, we're good. In our practice, we never are good enough. So when you see all of these commands, do this, do this, do that, it, it, it was to drive them to what? To, they need a substitute. They need an, a righteousness that they're not going to find. And we know they never, they're never able to pull it off, right? I mean, it's, just, it's a never-ending story of this kind of disobedience. Now, if you go to verse 25... We can try to move from 25 to 34 and we're going to have to go quick. That, that kind of gives you more of a theological way to approach the book because typically it would be preached. How would I typically preach it in most churches? Name to God? Are you obeying God? It would be driven home that way and then you would be like, oh me, I don't obey, I don't listen. Pastor, that was a great sermon. I was very convicted. You would go home probably by the time, you know, you know, supper time arrives, you already had done what? Yelled at someone, thought something you shouldn't, you would have already disobeyed in some way, shape, or form. And then you come back the next Sunday more defeated than you were the previous Sunday. Because the next Sunday, what are you going to hear? Do this, do this, do this. Now, we should obviously pursue righteousness. I'm not saying we dismiss or throw out sin. I'm saying the point is we have to realize our, the, the position we are in. As, because the sinful nature is not what? Eradicated. And if you believe in the eradication of the sinful nature, then what should flow from that? Belief in sinless perfection. And there's only very few churches who have ever taught that, right? And, and they're the kind of scary that they could believe that because you've got to do a lot of what? You've got, you got to change God's law to an external thing and not the internal. All right, verse 25. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt unto this day I have sent unto you all my servants and prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Once again, the King James, this kind of a figure of speech, it's almost like God is saying, hey, I would get up early and do what? Send you prophets. Right, I would make sure prophets were coming to you. And the prophets were to do what? The, speak to the people. In fact, remember, what's the difference between a prophet and a priest in the Old Testament? The priest speaks to God on behalf of the people. The prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. All right, everybody remember that? All right, so they were to be sent. And then what happens in the next verse? Yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Now, please know, are you seeing a generational pattern? Right? When they came out of the land of Egypt, what did he do? He sent, they disobeyed more than their fathers. It's a progressive thing. And like when you read the Bible, it's almost, it's so depressing in some ways, right? You got Genesis one and two and everything is good, 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 right? Genesis three, the fall happens, right? Genesis four, we have murder happening, right? A brother killing their brother. Genesis five, we have, and this person died and this person died and now we have death reigning. Genesis six, everything is so bad, gonna wipe it out right then you're like okay woohoo! we got rid of the problem right we got we have fixed the problem we wiped out the whole world everything is good but it's not good because there's people on the ark who have the same sinful nature that is the result of the fall and immediately after the ark they get off the ark noah gets drunk gets Naked, right? And then something really bad happens inside the tent, right? And then what's, it's just then, what do you have from that point forward? Every kind of sin you can imagine, right? Everything. You've got, you've got violence. You end up with genocide, rape, murder. I mean, you just, I mean, it's just a it's, a, it's a horrible, depressing state, right? And then what do we have here? God sent them prophets, but what did they do? They didn't listen. And how much did they not listen? They did worse than their fathers. Verse 27. Therefore, thou shalt speak all these words unto them that they will, but they will not hearken to thee. What a, what a great job. Hey, I'm calling you into the ministry. Go preach. They're not going to listen. Now, from a human perspective we would say what? We'd, we'd pull Jeremiah to the side and say, hey, I don't know if you realize this. You're wasting your time, right? But the one thing we have to understand when it comes to scripture, a lot of things don't make sense to us, right? I mean, that's, that, I mean that, if you ever think it all makes sense, you're in trouble, right? If anyone thinks they've got all the answers. In this case, all he can do is do what? Try to do what he's being told, right? There sport, uh, therefore, speak unto all these people, Words unto them, but they will not hearken to thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. But thou shalt say unto them, This is a nation that obeyeth not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receiveth correction. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a job of anyone dealing with human beings because we all have a. Sinful nature, right? That's that's pretty bad situation, yes? Now, verse twenty-nine. What happens in verse twenty-nine? What happens in verse twenty-nine? It's pretty interesting. What does he tell him to do? Okay, well, yeah, he tells him to do what? Right? He tells him to cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights cut off thine hair o jerusalem and cast it away take up a lamentation on high places for the lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath all right this is a this is a serious kind of situation right it's graphic it's demonstrating how bad their situation is. As one commentary put it, they state it this way. The command for Judah to cut off your hair was either as an expression of mourning, right? Remember sometimes that would happen when great mourning, you know, shave your head, sackcloth in, ashes to show mourning. So it could be calling for an expression of mourning um, or of a Nazarite vow ended by defilement, Right? The cutting of the hair was a symbol of grief. So it could have been grief. It could be a, a symbol of them breaking their own vows that they had not kept the covenant. So in other words, by shaving their head, you were in a covenant with God, but you defiled it. It could be a lot of symbolism going on here. Sometimes the text doesn't what? Offer us really commentary, but we know this. It's, you know, it's 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 not a good situation, Right. Yeah, don't even pray. Yeah, don't, don't just stop praying. Just the whole situation is bad, right? Verse 30, for the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, saith the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house, which is called by my name, to pollute it. Meaning that they had done what? They had brought idolatry into the temple. They had brought idolatry into the temple. The actual physical temple, they brought physical idols into it, which is a bad situation, but for 2,000 years of church history, the church has struggled with the same kind of concepts, right? Because we've, things have been brought into the church that you could argue, are they biblical or not biblical? And if you bring something into the church that's not biblical, it's the same kind of concept, yes? So the church has been struggling with it for 2,000 years, and we could get into all of the theological arguments about it, but yes, we see what's happening. What happens in verse 31? And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. Judah has gotten to the point that they're now doing what? Yeah, they have now began to offer sacrifices of children. All right. Um, now some uh, some think that the child sacrifice in ancient Canaan and Israel were rare, and uh, resorted to only in times of great distress. It's hard to say how common it was, but clearly it is being condemned. All right, and and of course our, our first thoughts is always what 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 if, whenever we read about Israel or Judah doing all of these things, our first reaction to it is usually what discuss don't we typically say how could they how could they and how could they what's the answer the same sinful nature that was in them is in us and that sinful nature has been present since the fall right okay i mean that's i mean that's a bad situation for them to be in i mean it's horrible is it not then look at verse um 32 therefore behold the days come saith the lord that it shall no more be called Tophet, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they shall bury in Tophet till there be no place. And the carcasses of of this people shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beast of the earth, and none shall fray them away. Then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. That ends in a pretty horrible way, does it not? Meaning just judgment and destruction is coming. Judgment and destruction is coming. And again, depending on how you, you want to handle this, I think you only, theologically the only way to handle this is just to show that under the law, where do you end? I think this is a way to, I want to try to drive this point home theologically because if we just look at, look, you only have two options in preaching this, right? You preach it as, hey, they messed up. You guys don't do what they did, right? That's typically how it's preached. What I want to do is this is what happens when the law is the solution. When the law is the solution, look at that last verse, how it ends, then will I cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth? In the King James, mirth. The NIV. Okay, I'm going to bring the end of joy and gladness. Right, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. For the land shall be desolate. It's going to take away. He's going to. It's going to end when you basically think of it this way. The law always ends with. The removal of joy, no gladness, and death. That's what the law always ends with. That's, that's, that's what the law is designed to do, right? The law it brings about death. It brings about condemnation. And I, at, at least I, there was a time, well, you, the Christianity has gone through cycles, right? By the time you establish the Roman Catholic Church comes into its full power, right, At the time, especially of Luther, the one thing we do know Luther was very upset with what about the Catholic Church? The corruption. Well, the corruption of the church, it was so corrupt. It was so corrupt, it wasn't even funny. Not only that, the selling of indulgences, right? We know the whole Protestant you know, Reformation Day. Uh, the whole selling of indulgences, he was getting very upset with that because you're basically telling, you know, the only way to, you know, to avoid you know, basically suffering in purgatory is to buy something from us, and then you get out of purgatory. And he's like, well, if you have the power to get people out of purgatory, then just release everybody, Right? Why are you taking money? But they were trying to build a building in Rome, right? So that's what they were trying to get money. So he was very upset at how corrupt. But once again, it shows that the same corruption that happened in Israel and Judah was happening in the church. Luther was like, there's a problem here. There's a problem here. And well, But now the good thing about Luther is he could have just focused on what? There, no, he could have focused on them. But Luther was very aware of his own under what the law right the law because the law he realized the law demanded this perfection and he was condemned and when Luther when we read about Luther you study Luther from a historical perspective I think that describes Luther right the the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness was gone there was no joy there was no happiness he was depressed he was discouraged he was on the he didn't know what to do and then what what did he finally figure out That righteousness that God demands, God provides. But he doesn't provide it in our obedience. He provided it in in Christ through an imputed righteousness. Or what, what was Luther's famous phrase for it? An alien righteousness. An alien righteousness. It was alien to us. And remember, he discovered this in reading the book of Romans, right? The righteousness by faith. It's not a righteousness we do right? Now, I just reviewed a sermon on the podcast, again, because this is common preaching in the evangelical church, that righteousness comes, it's our faith produces righteousness. No, it's our faith that gives us righteousness, imputed righteousness. The modern church likes to teach that your faith produces righteousness. No, your faith is what gives you imputed righteousness. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Because of Christ alone. Faith alone, by putting my faith, what happens? I'm declared to be righteous. If you, it, under the law, this is where it ends. So you either, read your, you either read the Old Testament and you walk around saying, I don't know what was wrong with them. I don't know what was wrong with them. They should have just worked harder, tried harder, prayed harder, went to the church. They were already going to church, okay? They were going to the temple. They were just doing it the wrong way. You can just sit there and condemn them, but the minute you're pointing your finger at them, all you got to do is forget the history of Israel, right? 70 AD, gone, right? No more, right? Until 1948. From 70 AD till 1948. Let's just look at that history. Look at the church. Look at some of the things the church was doing in that period of time. You've got some messed up things that happened in the history of Christianity. Anyone who studies church history, it's a mess, right? You've got the Crusades. You've got total corruption. You've got, you got every kind of crazy thing. The church supporting all kinds of things. Even as you go into the, the history of the United States, you've got churches that supported some really messed up stuff, do you not? You've got sin. You've got all kinds of problems. Right when when it when anyone in the church, it always blows my mind when we talk about how bad the culture is. You know, do just a little bit of research on how many children have been sexually abused inside churches. The numbers are staggering, and all kinds of denominations—not just one. Now, the Catholics get all the, you know, the press, but Southern Baptists have had a scandal with it. Independent Fundamental Baptists have had a scandal with it. Okay, everywhere, right? Because guess what? We're just, uh, we're sinners. Now it doesn't, I'm not justifying any sin. It must be condemned. What I'm saying is the law only reveals it. And when you look at this, that's where it ends. No myrrh, no gladness. Our only hope is not in what we can do. Our, our hope is not what we should do. Our only hope is what Christ did, right? Our salvation is not what, on we, what we do. It's based on what he did. That's why it was finished. It was complete. It was accomplished. The theological terms we use for this is the doctrine of imputation, right? His righteousness accredited us. Propitiation, he satisfied God's wrath on our behalf. Substitution, right? He died in my place, like those are the theological terms, but somehow in the evangelical world we've moved away from that, and try to revert back to a more law-based works-based system, and I, and why do we have a tendency to do that? Well, because we look around, we look, look at the church, it's a mess, we gotta fix it! And what do we think is the fix? Law, 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 and then try to start throwing people out, saying, well, you can't be saved, you can't be saved, you can't be saved, because you don't do this, 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 and this, and this, but my salvation is not what I do, it's what Christ did because I guess what you they tried to fix the problem in Judah with law and how does that end I mean just I want you to just really read that verse over and over how does it end the land shall be desolate and there will be no myrrh there'll be no joy it's just it ends in a horrible way it and I you Jeremiah I mean there's a lot of chapters to go and he's going to keep preaching the same message and oh what what book is after Jeremiah what book is after Jeremiah? Lamentations, <laughs> and is Lamentations a songs of joy? And no, it's pain and grief because what happens after all the preaching? There is failure, and it, it should humble us. Like we should be broken by this. We should say, "Woe is me! Oh, is me! Like my, it's me! I'm just as guilty as them, just maybe in a different way." Now we go to chapter 8, and it's going to get really ugly here, okay? All right, we got, I know and I, know I can't handle this, and I'm not trying to do this in the typical sermon way. We're just trying to work through this and discuss this because of the nature of the book. All right, but here we go. Let's see how far we can get. At that time, saith the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah, and the bones of the princes and the bones of the priest and the bones of the prophet and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. They shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven whom they have loved and whom they have served and after whom they have walked and whom they have sought and whom they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor be buried they shall be for dung upon the face of the earth. That is some strong language, is it not? What do you think is happening here? Right. Let, let me let me just read a, a description here. All right, Jeremiah. Oh, yeah, their death is not even good. That's a good way of putting it. Their death is not even good enough. There's going to have to be a final indignity given to them. But it very much is tied to their idolatry, if you you catch it. All right, let me just read from one commentary. Jeremiah prophetically saw a final indignity given in judgment to these great transgressors. Even the bones of the wicked who died before the Babylonians came would be disgraced they would not be gathered nor buried they should be like refuge on the face of the earth the custom of raising the bodies of the dead and scattering their bones about seemed to have been general it was the highest expression of hatred and contempt in other words you come in you conquer a land what do you do You dig up the bodies and throw them all over the place to show great indignity for not only the living, for the dead, but for the living. They see their loved ones being treated in such a horrible fashion. It is to destroy, demoralize, intimidate, scare. It's to bring you under subjection, right? Does that make sense? I mean that's a that's a horrible way of of, of looking at it, but it's it's it's, it's true. Um, and th- there's I mean this is also also very gruesome, right? Um, and it basically what's happening is, hey, these people worshipped what? The sun, the moon, and all the hosts of heaven whom they loved. So hey, guess what? I'm we're they're going to be now. Of course, this gets into a whole host of the sovereignty of God and. We can get into so many theological issues and philosophical issues that our brains will melt, and I don't want to do that now. But bottom line is, hey, they worshipped the sun, the moon, the stars. They worshipped all of these things. So I'm going to basically, I'm prophesying, God is telling them, that they're going to be dug up, thrown under the things they supposedly love, and basically say, what's that going to do for them? And what's it going to do for them? In fact, listen to that last sentence. They're going to be for dung upon the face of the earth. There is no nice way to express express that. Okay, I mean that's those are strong words. Strong words next i mean i don't know much there's not much more i can say there right i mean that that's pretty strong and verse 3 and death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of them that remain of this evil family which I remain which remain in all the places whether i have driven them saith the lord of hosts basically saying that after people witness that they would rather do what they'd rather die than live because how demoralizing it's going to be how humiliating how How? it's just going to be a horrible situation. No, I mean, none none of this is pleasant, is it? I mean, these are not the verses you put on your refrigerator, right? Okay, agreed? Okay, hey, what are we, we're going to memorize the scripture this week. Yeah, okay, this is not the ones people pick, right? When people quote verses from Jeremiah at graduations, they don't, they don't quote this one, do they? Right, they quote other ones and rip them out of context, but that's a whole different story, okay? All right? This is a horrible situation. All right, uh, verse four, moreover, thou shall say unto them, thus saith the Lord, shall they fall and not rise, shall he turn away and not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? A perpetual backsliding. They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. Now, I will say the perpetual backsliding had been happening. How long had perpetual backsliding been going on in Israel? They're not not long removed from their Egyptian bondage, right? When they start wandering in the wilderness before they decide they want to do what? They want to go back. It starts right there, right? They want to go back. They want to go back. And that perpetual backsliding is, look, think about it from a a theological perspective. It's in all of us, right? Because what remains in every person, even after conversion, sinful nature. Where does the sinful nature always want to go back to? Egypt, right? Just as Israel wanted to go back to Egypt, we always want to go back to Egypt. Now, there's some aspects we say, I don't ever want to go back to that, but there's still enough because the sinful nature is all about what? Self, self, self. It leads to the selfishness. It leads to greed. It leads to all of those things. Verse six, I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness saying, what have I done? Everyone turned to his course as the horse rusheth into the battle. Yea, the stork and the heaven knoweth her appointed times and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming but my people know not the judgment of the Lord. Basically saying animals know better than you guys, right? Animals know better than you guys. Uh, and so I, we, there's a lot more we could read from commentaries. But basically, the, the birds, the animals seem to have an idea of what to do and when to do it and how to get there and what to do. I mean, when you watch animals, sometimes it's amazing. On how, how do they know to fly there? How do they know to go here? How do they know to do that? Like, how do they figure this out? And he's saying, you guys can't even figure out what your creator is calling you to do. All right? Now, the difference is we have a sinful nature, which is all the problems. Yes? Now, starting in verse 8. I don't know, can we do this? Oh, I don't know if we can do this. Here we go, verse 8. How do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he it, the pen of the scribes is in vain. Now, I want to go a lot further, but I'm, just, I'm not going to go past this for now. I, I know I'm violating every rule and... For those on the podcast, I will get emails telling me, you didn't get to where you needed to get, but that's okay. I really want to spend some time right here and just end with this because I think this is very practical, right? Now, remember, our goal is to try to understand first and foremost what is being said to the people at that time in its proper context because it's written to them, for them, and that's how we need to understand it. So from that context, the problem is this, is Israel, Judah, they had this never-ending Thought, thought that they were okay. We've got the law. We've got the tabernacle. We've got all this. They constantly thought they were okay, right? And they constantly were wrong about being okay. Now, this leads to us within the church and, and, and how it applies to us. One of the most frustrating things about church history, about theology, about any of it, is that all Christians in general we always perceive ourselves to be what? What does the verse say about them? We are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us. You talk to Christians, we always believe that we are wise, and that God's word is on our side. 2,000 years of church history, No matter what the church does, we always claim that somehow we're wise, we can figure out scripture, and that it always agrees with whom? Us. And then we will use that supposed agreement with us to justify what? Whatever we want to do. Right? If it's, you name it, it's been used to justify. I mean, just think of the things scriptures have been used to justify. Everything from polygamy, slavery, full-blown genocide and war, right? I mean, uh, you, you can have two different countries, both claiming God is on their side when they fight a war. But they both claim that the scriptures are on their side, all saying it's on our side right? Everyone claims it's on their side. That, that, is a troubling, that is a troubling reality. Nobody wants to acknowledge it, but it's just a troubling reality, because it always scares me. Well, then, when do we say, hey, I'm wise, and the law is with me, and I could be completely wrong? They thought the law was with them. They thought they were wise, and they are completely what? A thousand percent wrong. And so that always should cause us to be a little bit more humble. But it is maddening that in 2,000 years of church history, all we've done is fight, split, fight, split, fight, split, fight. Nobody can agree on anything. There, you I mean, you can get 50 commentaries and come up with 100 interpretations of any passage of scripture. Nobody agrees on anything. and, and But everyone thinks that we're on the right side. Does, does that not scare you a little bit about ourselves? And I think we're requires us to be a little bit more humble and to do what go you know what let's not worry about whether the scripture is on my side right let's not not worry about me claiming i can understand it let me just try to figure out what it says and be humble to acknowledge there's certain parts of it that are extremely difficult and that we need to acknowledge those difficulties now there's basic rules you can follow obviously we got to make sure we remember that's that Its original audience is more important than us. Its original context is more important than us. And we have to try to, but we step in and try to figure this out. This is a sad state of affairs. Look at the horrible judgment that's coming. And they're like, and and like, he even asked the question in verse eight, right? Is it not stated as a question? How do you say we are wise and the law of lives with us? How can you say that? How can you, how do you not realize how bad of shape you are in? So I just think sometimes what we need to do is just, we'll end with, for today, I just want you to ask yourself, to look at yourself and just ask how many times spiritually you have been guilty of just spiritual arrogance and spiritual pride. We're good at pointing at everyone else's problems, right? Right? And, 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 and as Christians, we always have this mindset that we, that we know more, we understand more, and then we condemn the world all day long, telling them how wrong they are. We got our own problems, right? We have to, we have to be, I think we should look and see where we're guilty of a spiritual arrogance and a spiritual pride and, and be broken and, uh, and humbled by it. Does that mean we don't pursue truth? not saying that. Does that not mean that we don't preach the word and say, this is what it means to the best of our ability? Yes, we preach it that way. But we should also be always willing to do this. One of the things I do, one of the things I do in my preaching, what is something I will never use? I never use old notes ever under any circumstances, right? And whenever I come to the text, what do I always do? Everything that I thought I knew about the text, I don't care Look, all the schools I went to, all the seminaries, Bible colleges, all the degrees I have, none of that matters when I open up Jeremiah this time, right? I've covered Jeremiah, I don't know how many different schools, right? Who cares? That learning is of what relevance today. None, because I need to study the text anew, because if I was wrong in the past, if I rely on the past understanding, I will only bring the past misunderstanding into the present understanding. So you always have to set aside what you knew. All those presuppositions, study the text anew, realizing that we are simply weak, fleshly people who are not all-knowing, right? We are are not what? Infallible. We're fallible, weak-minded, People trying to understand the word of God, which is way above us in so many different ways. And all we can do is use all of the tools we know about reading, you know, interpretation of words, context, syntax, all of those things. We apply it to the text and we try to be like, this is what we think it means today. But I'm more than willing to do what? Study it tomorrow and may change my view entirely because we don't want to be arrogant where... Even God is like, you, you, "Why do you think you're so wise? Why do you think you've got the scriptures?" I, I would hate to be in that situation. That, that's humiliating for them. But I think in, I think in our own lives. So look for where just. Look back in your life where spiritual arrogance was there. I mean, I, I was guilty of it very quick, right? I've told the story so many times. From the, from the night I was saved at First Baptist Church, Tuscola, Texas, and, you know, as a, as a teenager, that night I went home, read the entire New Testament one night. Within the first week, I'd, I'd read the entire, within the, the month, I'd probably read the Bible five or six times. Boom, I'm reading, reading, studying, 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 reading, reading, reading. And it wasn't long. I was walking into the Sunday school class at First Baptist Tuscola, as an arrogant jerk, mocking and humiliating the Sunday school teacher. Because I'm like, you're the Sunday school teacher? What, did you even study That what are you doing? You don't even know what you're talking about, right? And I'm the little teenage punk, you know, telling the teacher that they don't know what they're talking about because it was, but it was frustrating because I'm like, did you even read it? Because they gave us the little study guide, the little quarterly study guide that we got, right? Like this, right? I don't remember what it was called back then, okay? But it was from the Southern Baptists and, and Lifeways from the Southern Baptists. So it was something similar to this. And, well, I took it and went home and did what? Oh, I read every single word. I had cross-references. I had notes. I had it marked up. So I came into Sunday school like, let's go! And then, the, and then I'm like, nobody read it? I'm looking around at the rest of the people. I'm like, why do you even come to church? Like, what's the point? And then the teacher, I'm like, did you not read... It's on page six. Did you not read it? Like, and I'm just being an arrogant jerk, right? Because I'm like, what is the problem? Thinking I had it all figured out. Thinking I knew it better than everyone else, right? And then, and then you add, you know, you know, we always talk about in seminary, first year seminary students, the worst thing you can find on earth because they think they know Everything, right? And then finally, I had a you know Bible professor who told me the whole purpose of education was, I've told the story, to show me what I don't know. It's like, if you walk out of here thinking you know more, no, I'm here to show you, and he was more blunt, to show you how stupid you are. I'm going to prove to you how much you don't know. And then when I started realizing, man, I thought I had it all figured out, then it started becoming, now, it's still been up and down, Right? I've still had times where, like, I got it all figured out, and then you realize you don't. Spiritual pride is a dangerous thing. Spiritual arrogance is a dangerous thing. And Israel, Judah th- thinks they have it all figured out. And what were they just told? It's getting ready to happen. God, God's going to come in, and even your dead bodies are going to be th- thrown across the earth like dung. That's a, but they're still walking around going, We're good to go. We're going to church. Hey, everyone, let's go to church. We're going to offer a sacrifice. We're godly, we're better. Good thing we're not like those Gentiles. No, the Gentiles are coming to destroy you. And that messed up. And then when you turn to uh, the Gospels, what do you find? Well, we still their problem. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. I thank thee, God, that I'm not like them. We're better than the Romans. We're better than the Gentiles. They, They still had the same arrogance. And I think, as I think, within the church, there's a lot of spiritual arrogance, not only in others, in all of us as well. This church is not exempt from it. We're just, in fact, in some cases, because we've dedicated this church to being the in-depth teaching of God's word. That's what we've always been about. We always get accused of being a seminary, right? Because I've always tried to go as in-depth as we can. It's easier for us to be that way, right? Because we go in we, church history, theology. And we can go, look at how much we know, thinking we're all better. We, gotta, we need to look at ourselves to see, are we just like Judah? So spiritually blind that we can't even see our own spiritual condition. The worst blindness is the blindness when you cannot see your own condition before God. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Help us see ourselves in the sin of Judah and in the sin of Israel. Help us be convicted and broken over our own pride and our own arrogance so that we too could be humbled, and, but yet pursue truth, speak truth, and defend truth. Finding that balance, Lord, is something that we will never figure out on this side of heaven. But Lord, let us pursue it and desire it. And we ask this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. And God's people said.